Psalm 50. You'll notice at the top, there's not a description of a backdrop of the psalm like there is many, but you will see a psalm of Asaph. So you say, who is Asaph? That's why you want to turn to 1 Chronicles, which is going to be a little bit back, not too much back into your Old Testament. Let's take a look at how uh, this particular gentleman came into the book of Psalms, also known as the Psalter. Uh, that's the entire hymn book of Israel called the, uh, the Psalter. 150 songs. Each of these, remember, are a song. And First Chronicles 16 gives us the backdrop of the author. Let's take a look at verse 4. It says, and he, 1 Chronicles 16, 4, that is David, appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord, even to celebrate and to thank and praise the Lord God of Israel. 1 Chronicles 16, 5. Asaph, the chief, now there's our author of Psalm 50. Just a side note, we have his name, I believe, on 12 of our psalms. So when we introduce the Psalter or the book of Psalms, I mentioned to you that there are various authors and there are books within the book of Psalms. And Asaph is credited with about 12 different psalms, just FYI. And he is described as the chief, something like a chief worship leader. He is a Levite, verse 4. Second to him was Zechariah. Then you have JL and that guy and a couple of other people. <laughs> uh, you have Benaiah down there at the second line, Obed-Edom and uh, JL. And you have musical instruments, harps, the lyre. Also Asaph, there's our author again of Psalm 50, played loud sounding cymbals. Asaph was a percussionist. And Benaiah, verse 6, and Jehaziel. The priests blew trumpets continually before the Ark of the Covenant of God. Then on that day, David first assigned Asaph and his relatives. So he had a musical family, a Levitical family, but they were musicians or worship leaders. Asaph and his relatives assigned by King David to give thanks to the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, Sing to him, sing praises to him, speak of all his wonders, glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his face continually. Now, the very next book is Second Chronicles. I want to take you to chapter 29, just for a quick glance at another look at Asaph. Uh, and this particular uh, time is later under King Hezekiah, but there's a mention of Asaph in terms of writing a song, and let's just take a look at 2929, Second Chronicles 2929 says, now, at the completion of the burnt offerings, the king and all who were present with him bowed down and worshiped. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David, and Asaph the seer. Now you'll notice that David is given credit for words that were in songs. Asaph is given credit, and he's also called a seer. When you see that in your Bible, a seer is another word for a prophet, because a prophet saw things, got visions from the Lord, even saw future things. That's why it's just a synonym for the idea of a prophet. And notice, so they sang praises with joy and bowed down and worshiped. Now let's turn back to Psalm chapter 50. So you have this author. His name is Asaph. He is a Levite. He's a prophet. He comes from a Levitical line. Uh, that is a line of priests. And there was a whole group of people who were commissioned by David and then other kings to lead in praise and worship. You might have noticed, I, I did mention it, that since Asaph was a percussionist or he banged the cymbals together, there was early drumming and uh, crashing of cymbals. There were trumpeteers and there were guitar players. The lyre is an ancient guitar. And so worship and musical instruments go all the way back to this time of David. And God was honored in the singing of songs and with varying instruments and different abilities and those who had the ability, those who were gifted in this area. 
Some of you in the room are musicians. Some of you don't have a musical bone in your body. Some of you can't even carry a note with a handle. We know because we sit next to you in church, but that's a whole different story. And people <laughs> have been hanging on to the idea that there is a filter in heaven and all of your voices sound beautiful because God just filters it out. Uh, that's probably not true, but he loves you anyway. So there you go. Psalm 50, a psalm of Asaph, honoring God. The word honor in the ancient world means that which is weighty. And so it's that which you put the most weight in or on, what you value the most. In the ancient world, value is determined by the weight of something, like in money. And so that's the word honor. You could call this a divine summons. It, it opens this way. The mighty one, Psalm 50, verse 1, that is El, E-L. God, that's the Hebrew Elohim. The Lord, pointed out on numerous occasions, whenever you see the capital L and small caps O-R-D, is always Yahweh. So you have three names for God opening the psalm. The mighty one, El, God, Elohim, three different names for the one true God. The Lord, Yahweh, has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. A psalm of Asaph, this is the first of the psalms of Asaph. And uh, he bears, his name bears 12 different psalms, as I mentioned. And he is the author. And it opens with this powerful three different names given to the true and living God. One writer says, a stunning introduction to this poem. The language suggests a grand display of God himself. El, Elohim, Yahweh, summons. And he summons here in verse 1, the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. From the time that the sun rises till the time that the sun sets, God controls everything. He calls heaven and earth, if you will, to bear witness. That happens many times in our Bible. The mighty one is God, the Lord El, Elohim, the summons of God. If you have a New Living Translations, Translation, it says, he has summoned all humanity from where the sun rises to where it sets. Hopefully when God speaks, people listen. There was that old commercial. What was that investment firm? When they speak, people Listen. And the question becomes, when God speaks, do we listen? You know, we have a Bible in front of us, but you guys know that throughout church history, there were men who were burned at the stake, more than one, to try to get a Bible into the common person's hands, to try to expose us to the word of God. They, they died that we might have the living word of God. And so whenever God speaks, whenever his word is opened, it would be good if we have ears to hear what he says to his people. Not what he's saying to somebody else. God is dealing with us. He's dealing with me. When I open his word, he's speaking to me. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty God has shown forth. Now, why should the earth and its people respond to this divine summons? And what does God wish to communicate? Well, you'll see in a moment that the courtroom scene will unfold and there's a final appeal to mankind at the very end of the psalm. And the lesson for mankind is not to forget about God amidst all that we do and all that we have. We are made in the image of God. We have a lot of blessings and there's a way that we can order our life if we want to, to suppress the truth of God. Romans chapter one says that's exactly what much of the world does. They suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. I've joked in the past that some people take a truth suppressant every morning so that they don't have to listen to the external and internal reality of God. They have to push it away, literally push it down. And a commentator uh, on the book of Romans mentioned that a good illustration for this is like if you had a beach ball in a pool and you're trying to push it underneath the water, inevitably, what does it do? It rises back to the top. And that's what the truth of God does. Not only the external truth of God in the physical creation that 
leaves man without excuse just from what's been made because God's visible or invisible attributes are on display by what's been created. But there's an internal reality as well. It's our conscience, uh, the law of God written on our hearts. And God has shown forth one way that he has shown himself is through a particular nation. And that nation, you don't have to guess, is the nation of Israel. Out of Zion, Zion is another name for Jerusalem, the perfection of beauty. God decided to write his name there forever. Not because they were more numerous than any people or greater than any people, but because God chose them. God chose Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. And through that line, he would bring forth the Messiah. And God uh, placed his love, called Israel the apple of his eye and said, I will write my name in Jerusalem forever. And it was from Jerusalem that God decided to bring his Shekinah glory down to the earth. And that would be manifested in a place called the tabernacle. Later, it would become a physical temple. And God said, I will allow my glory to come down. And at the dedication of the temple in the time of Solomon, the glory was so heavy, the priest couldn't even go in there. And the God of Israel would draw people. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch who traveled all that way to go and find out about the God of the Bible? And he was reading the scroll of Isaiah in his chariot. And a divine appointment happened there where he could get someone to explain to him, namely Philip, the truth about Jesus from that very text. And if I had a text, a jumping off point from the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, it would be a wonderful jumping off point. And so the world came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, blessed by God. Ask me what you want. And you didn't ask for riches. You asked for wisdom. Therefore, I'll bless you with all of it. And people came to Israel, to Jerusalem, to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And people knew of the song, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Jerusalem was the glory of the earth. And from that place, the true God, the one true God, shone forth. And Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. And when they would hold their feasts, seven of them listed in Leviticus 23, that was supposed to be a sign to the nations. And all able-bodied Jews would come three times a year for Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Some of them to, remain, to remember past blessings. Some of them to look forward to future blessings. But other peoples would come and check it out namely the Ethiopian eunuch, but there were others who were interested, who seemed to be drawn to this place and this unique people. And even today, isn't it interesting as Christians, what do many of us want to do? We want to sojourn to what? To the Holy Land, because we want to see it. We want to see where Jesus walked. I was telling a group of people, we were at a place uh, at our, uh, in 2006, we went for the first time to Israel, and we were at the pavement stone where Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate. And uh, a woman in our group, she, uh, and we were actually underneath the physical city because, you know, ancient cities were, are built on tells, and that means built, you know, one upon another because of disasters and stuff like that. And so we were actually underneath the physical city at the, what they believe is the actual pavement stone where Jesus' feet would have touched. And this woman got down, she was older, on her hands and knees and kissed the ground to honor this particular area. Where, could you, where else could you be in the world where Jesus walked? We were in a boat on the Sea of Galilee and we know, knew somewhere along there he walked on the sea. I mean, it's pretty amazing. And it's not, you know, mystical in that sense, but it, is, it has archaeological, it has apologetic value, but it also has a special, there's a spiritual reality that this is the land that God decided to write his name forever. And now, of course, it's been a land that's been ravaged by war and much divided darkness there in some respects, but yet God has written his name there forever. And one of the ways that God has shown himself is through the nation of Israel that now is back in that land after almost 2,000 years. And Psalm 14, 7 says, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. 
When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice, Israel will be glad. Psalm 53, 6 says, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores his captive people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Salvation came to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And that was one of the main purposes of the calling of Abraham was to bring forth the line to the Messiah, but also to have a people that would keep the word of God and pass it along. In fact, when Paul talks about the children of Israel, he says they are Israelites to whom belong the adoption as sons, Romans 9, verse 4, the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is overall God bless forever. Amen. And so the Lord chose Israel to be a vehicle, to be a vessel. And now today, his vessel is guess who? It's you. It's the church. And the church is to let its light so shine that they may see our good works and do what? Glorify our Father who's in heaven. We're ambassadors of this gospel message. Where to go to the ends of the earth. Every time you walk out those doors, I don't know if you noticed, but on the wall, just above the sound booth there, and you can turn around if you want to look at it, it says, it's a missional verse. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Did you know that that's part of your job? My job? Yeah. You're the church, right? We're to go out, not just make converts, we're to make disciples. We're to teach them everything that Jesus commanded us. This is our mission. And so the Lord saved Israel. And Israel, here given voice, says, May our God come, verse 3, and not keep silence. Fire devours before him, and it is very tempestuous around him. May our God come. The modern cry that we have in the church is Maranatha, O Lord, come. And I'm sure Israel was saying that when they were in uh, slavery in Egypt. I'm sure they were saying that when they were in Babylonian captivity and Assyria had ravaged them. O Lord, come. We look at our world today and what do we say? O Lord, come. And then we have a good day and we say, well, not so fast. You know, maybe... Maybe wait a little bit longer. <laughs> I've had a good stretch. I've had a good, good, good couple of days, you know. The disciples, when Jesus appeared to them over a period of 40 days, asked this question in Acts 1.6, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times and seasons that the Lord, the Father, is fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. And then you'll start, remember, at Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And after Jesus had said this, remember what happened? He ascended back into heaven. And they were staring up there like, where'd he go? And then two men in shining clothing appeared. And remember what they told him? This same Jesus that you saw go up into heaven is going to return in like fashion. And it's at that time that guess what he will do? He will set up his kingdom. It'll be a kingdom of light. It'll be a new Jerusalem. And this is the story of Scripture. This particular desire for the Lord to come, and notice in verse 3, fire and tempest are judgment language. And there's similar language when it describes the day of the Lord. And so he summons the heavens above, look at verse 4, and the earth to judge, or you could say to rule his people. We'll come back to that. He says, this is the summons, gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice, and the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. And then all God's people said... Selah. What's that mean again? Pause. Meditate. It's a pause in the music, but it's a chance now to just let the first 
several verses, namely six verses, settle in your soul. And let me tell you that there's three major blocks in Psalm 50. The first is God summoning the heavens above the earth, calling his people to what we would call a holy convocation. And this is kind of an interesting thing because when the Lord comes, there's a trumpet sound associated with his coming. And there were a couple major uses of the trumpet in Israel. One was to call God's people to God's presence. So they would blow the shofar and it would be for a sacred assembly and it would be to gather the people, the people to God's presence. One of the other major purposes of the trumpet was to blow it to go to war. And there was also a sense of warning, like the watchman on the wall would blow the trumpet. When Jesus comes, he will come with a shout of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And when he comes, he's going to first rescue his people. Now, this is very much in keeping with Psalm 50. He's going to rescue his people. The dead in Christ will rise first. There will be a rapture. The church, God's people will go up, go out. And then the wrath will come. And this is what's associated with the trumpet. Think about it. It's calling the people of God to the presence of God in resurrection and rapture. The trumpet blows. Bring my people to me. We'll meet the Lord in the air. And then the trumpet blast indicates war where God will now pour his wrath out on an unbelieving world. Psalm 50 captures what may well be an end-of-the-world judgment scene where God will separate the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. That's what's going to happen. As little Crystal Lewis used to sing it, People get ready. Jesus is coming. And she talked in that song about there will be a time when we will be counted. And oh, that we would hear, oh, you're one of my sheep. <laughs> Enter in to the joy of the Lord. Amen? Amen? And so God calls, verse 4, he summons, court language, the heavens above. He calls the earth to bear witness. You can see this in Deuteronomy 30. 19, where Moses says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. It's interesting to, to contemplate the judgment scene because in that scene, uh, angels will be there. There will be a dividing, if you will, of who belongs to God and who does not. And so that's the first section. It ends with, in verse 6, the uh, idea of Selah is the pause and the ponder. That's section 1, the summons of God. And let's move on to section two. He says, Hear, O my people, seven, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, you are God. One thing I didn't mention is that the word judge uh, earlier in the first block that we looked at is a word that also means to rule. So it doesn't always mean like, I'm going to judge you. It also has the idea of a king. I will rule over you. He says, I do not reprove you, he's speaking to Israel now, for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings are continually before me. That's not the problem. I shall take no young bull out of your house nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. <laughs> now, does God just own the cattle on a thousand hills? No, he owns more than that. It's a way of saying he owns everything. He doesn't need my stuff, whether it's my money or my time or my talent or my treasure, but I get to give it to him. Are you with me? And in the ancient world, when you were part of a nation like Israel and your whole life was about sacrifice and temple worship and feasts, what if you just didn't want to cooperate? What if you just said, yeah, I'm part of the people of Israel, but you know what? Not feeling it. I don't know if I want to go to the feast this year. Don't know if I want to sit through another Seder meal. Don't know if I want to bring an offering. The teenager says, I don't know if I want to go to church today. <laughs> you say, well, where are you moving to then? <laughs> I'll help you pack. 
I heard a story. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the university, but it was a, it was a Christian uh, seminary. Can't remember if it was Dallas Theological Seminary, but there was a time in their history when they were kind of on the verge of closing and they were short of money. And so uh, they decided to pray. What a novel concept. <laughs> and so the prayer went something like this. This is how I remember the story. They said, Lord, we're, we're, we're short and uh, we're not going to make it unless you intervene. So the Bible says you own the cattle on a thousand hills. So would you sell a few of the cattle and give it to us? Well, a rancher happened to be passing by the university and he had a breakdown in his vehicle and he walked in just after that prayer meeting and said, hey, I had a breakdown out here and could you guys use some cattle? I'll donate them to the seminary. And they were able to continue. And God answered that prayer quite literally. <laughs> he owns everything. The earth is the Lord and the people therein. Everything belongs to him. And so the, the people of Israel apparently started to get the idea that God needs me to show up. Because if I don't show up with this calf, maybe God will go hungry. I mean, he's laid out this stuff in Leviticus and other places for us to give sacrifice. So maybe he needs it. Maybe he needs me. Sometimes we show up as a new Christian and maybe we have a sense that we're called to ministry. And boy, you ain't seen nothing yet till I get here. Oh, I'm going to shake some things up. Wait till I get in the pulpit. I'll tell you like it is. <laughs> this whole thing's been designed for me to show up at this very moment. You know, that, that's why the Bible says don't lay hands too quickly on a new convert because they'll probably fall on their face because that's not what this is all about. And so they, they did the sacred rites. Today we could say to be religious, all you got to do is show up at the right place, wearing the right clothing, going through the right motions, but you could do it devoid of your heart. And that's just as true in the evangelical church as it is in a Roman Catholic church or whatever else you want to talk about. Amen? I mean, if you've been around long enough, you can put on the church face. You can change your vocabulary when you hit the church parking lot. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Consecrated a little bit more this week. Believe in sanctification. Don't want to practice procrastination. You know, whatever. That's not a biblical word. But. Did you guys hear about the uh, T-shirt uh, made by procrastinators? It was on the front. It says "Procrastinators Unite." On the back, it says "Tomorrow." Anyway, never mind. That. Wasn't even planned. <laughs> I know, 11, every bird of the mountains, everything that moves in the field is mine. Notice this. If I were hungry, not that God gets hungry, but if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. If I were hungry, and I am not, God doesn't hunger, he doesn't need anything, he doesn't sleep Yes, when Jesus became a man, he did get hungry, right? And you remember that interaction with the disciples? Where did he find food? Oh, my food is to do the will of my Father, right? We get so enamored with the things like what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, what we're going to wear. God says, if, if I got hungry, I'm not, I, I don't need to call you. I own everything, I don't need another bull. If you're going to go through the religious motions and I don't have your heart, then what good is it? If you're going to write the check and you're going to say, well, we're supposed to give tithes or I heard somewhere that you got to be baptized to make it to heaven, but your heart is not baptized, forget it. Amen? The check means nothing to God unless he first has your heart. Your time. You can be benevolent with your time. You can do good deeds and I'm not saying that's not a good thing, but ultimately, if you're going to do it in the name of the Lord, the first thing you want to make sure is that you know the Lord. We can get caught up in doing things for the wrong reasons or the wrong heart. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls, 13, 
or drink the blood of male goats. Now remember, God is talking to his people. You might say, well, what does he want then? I mean, he did, he did lay out the sacrificial system. What is he looking for? What is most important? Galatians 5, 6 says, what really matters is faith expressing itself through love. Galatians 5, 6. He wants your faith expressed in the way you live, namely through love. Spurgeon says, however scrupulous, or this may not be Spurgeon, it's another author. However scrupulous in external worship, if, if it, it was offered as if they conferred an obligation in giving God his own. Do you know how some people, they do something like this. Well, I heard someone and somebody say that if I give, God will give me back. And so they do a give to get scheme. Oh, this sells in America. And it's starting to sell like hotcakes in other places. Because the preacher gets up and says, now if you give in the name, right? Then what's going to happen? And, the, and sometimes they'll use a, a psalm. Uh, we're in Psalm 50. Let's say we're in verse 14. So you give $50 and 14 cents in the name. And this is what's coming back to you. And I will tell you, it's just a game. That's all it is. Because God doesn't want you to give to get something. He wants you to give out of gratitude. Amen? Imagine that someone gave you a present, gave you a gift, but you knew in your heart that they're only giving it to you so that they can get something back from you. Maybe get an in. Maybe you have season tickets to their favorite team. And they said, oh, I heard it was your birthday and I wanted to bring you this. And they brought you that. And you're like, oh, and by the way, do you still have those season tickets? <laughs> what would you think is just a normal person? You would go, oh, string is attached right here. Do you think the Lord doesn't know when we're playing games with him? When we show up and we try to look right and say the right words and maybe, you know, let our offering hang when we used to pass the bag. We don't do that anymore. Let it hang on the edge of the bag so someone might see what the numerical value of that note might be. <laughs> right? But God knows. And so offer to God, 14, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. Look, if you do it this way, I'll rescue you, and you will what? You'll honor me. Why don't you give me, you know the sacrifice that God really wants from us tonight? It's a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And I'm going to show you, uh, since we are the church, let's turn to the New Testament. Let's go to Hebrews 13. I'm going to rattle this off quickly. If you have a marker, this would be really cool if you could mark these things. You're going to have several exhortations. You call them imperatives, actions that we should take. As New Covenant Christians, here's what they are. It's written in the Hebrew letter, so it's written to uh, Jewish Christians who are so used to sacrificing to be in right standing. And here's what the writer says. Here's the acceptable sacrifices for New Testament Christians. 13, Hebrews 13, 1. Let love of the brethren continue. Keyword love. Verse 2, keyword is hospitality. Verse 3, we're to remember prisoners, especially those who are persecuted. We're to hold marriage, verse 4, Hebrews 13, what? In honor. And we were to let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Psalm 50 is a judgment psalm. We're to let our character be free from the love of money. We're to be content. I'm trying to move quickly here. We're to remember those who led us, leaders who spoke the word of God to us. We're to imitate their faith. We're not to be carried away by varied and strange teachings. For it's good, verse 9, for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods. Skip down to verse 15. Through him then let us continue to offer up what? 
a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. New Testament letter affirming the same thing. Don't neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices God is pleased. This is the sacrifice he wants for us in the new covenant. Obey your leaders. I wanted you guys to see that so if I tell you anything later, you'll obey. Just kidding. (laughs) You're to submit to them for they keep watch over your souls and they'll give an account. And then you're to pray. Pray for the brethren. Pray for leaders. Pray for missionaries and ministries. Cover them in prayer. It's our job. This is what God wants. Back to Psalm 50. Israel's problem? They were really thankful. They're always giving God thanks for the water and the manna and the glory cloud. So thankful. They weren't like some of our friends and relatives who are complaining all the time. Nah. So I'm going to ask you an application question. How much of your time do you think you spend in thankfulness and gratitude, including your inner thoughts? And how much of it do you spend whining, complaining? How much of your time do you spend just isolated on your own needs, thoughts, shortcomings, you know, you name it, as opposed to prayers directed towards the saints and giving thanks to God for all of his gifts in your life. I have to be honest, this is a battle. It's a battle for all of us. We've got to shift our thinking. We've got to have our mind transformed so that we're not just consumed with self. But we battle our flesh, the world, the enemy. It's an onslaught. And then the final section of Psalm 50 is to the wicked. And by the way, the wicked here are among his people. So this is also children of Israel. And here's what he says to them, last block now. What right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? Now, in Jesus' time... He said these words to the religious leaders. And if you want a treatment on this, read Matthew 23, where Jesus just rails on the religious leadership and just says to them, all you care about is greetings and your robes and how you look on the outside and your ritual. And he said, he quotes this verse, this is Isaiah 29, 13. He says, They honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. Their reverence for me, Isaiah 29, 13, consists of tradition learned by rote, that is, by memory or repetition. They repeat the right phrases, but their hearts are far from me. He says of these particular people, you hate discipline, You cast my words behind you. Now, this is a hard section, but here it is. When you see a thief, you're pleased with him, and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil. Your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. This is a category in verses 16 through 22 where God addresses people who claim to be covenant people, They know Bible verses. They can look the part. But they're full of slander, deceit, and ugly stuff. One of the worst things that can happen is for us to play a game with God, go into the parking lot, and then all of a sudden we take the mask off and we're somebody else. That, all that is, is a show. And God says, come into the courtroom because I want to tell you, I've got a pretty good amount of evidence. And here's what I'd like to see. 
I'd like to see your heart be in love with me. I'd like to have a relationship with you that's not just about religious ritual, but it's about a relationship. I don't want you applauding the things that I say are not right. I don't want you slandering your neighbor or your family. I don't want you to be a liar in business. I don't want you to claim the phrases of the world, well, business is just business. Or you're a lustful person, but you say, I'm, I'm looking at the menu, but I'm not ordering anything. <laughs> and frankly, all you've done now is imbibe the world. And that's not what God wants. I'm not saying it's not a battle. But God says, I, I, know, I know your heart. I know what you do. You speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. You, you speak evil. Your tongue frames lies. These things you have done, 21, and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. And you're going to see that the answer is, but I'm not. Hey, talk to the big man upstairs. Yeah. And, and I know sometimes what people mean when they say that, right? They might mean it in a good way, but other people, they don't understand who God is. They, they got their theology from some movie. God sits behind this desk and he got a white suit on. And he's pretty close to me. In fact, some people think they're going to be him one day. <laughs> Scoot over. <laughs> I want the corner office. <laughs> uh-uh. I kept silent, so you thought, well, uh, God doesn't care. He's probably just a lot like us. <laughs> and he says, you thought that, 21 I will reprove you and state the case in order. I think that's courtroom language before your eyes. Now, final two verses. Consider this, you who forget God. And that last block was people who do. And here's a frightening verse. Lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. You know, we're coming to the final verse, but imagine it's judgment day and someone had been in the church, much of their lives, maybe they wore the garb and they said the prayers in public and they did, did some things in Jesus' name. And they say, Lord, Lord. And Jesus says, I never knew you. But we did this in your name. And we did this in your name. And Jesus, who by the way, the Bible says, Jesus is the judge so you can put this now into the category. All judgment has been given to the Son. Amen? Jesus Christ. So the, the Son is not optional. Well, I believe that there's a supreme being out there. Jesus, I'm not quite sure about. Jesus is the judge. You need to know the judge. In those verses, the judge, Jesus says, I never knew you. That's what's at stake here. That's why we got to preach the biblical gospel. Not just a feel good, whatever you believe about some transcendent being is cool. Because there is a judgment. And here's it says, what, will you, what would you do if that day came and you rejected the judge who is also the Savior? Who would you turn to then? Who, who would you cry out to? There would be none to deliver you. And then, I think an invitation at the end. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me, and to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. Now, he was going to case the state, uh, state the case in order, as in a courtroom. And now he says, I want you to order your way according to what you've heard, like an offer of repentance here. Offer the right kind of sacrifice. Honor my name, and I'll show you. See that word salvation there? Remember what we've learned? Whenever you see salvation in the 
Uh, Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, that's the name or the word Yeshua. And that translates over in Greek to Jesus. I will show you the Yeshua of God. So what do we do? How do we respond to Psalm 50? Well, we offer God the true sacrifice from the heart, and we realize how desperately we need Yeshua, the God of our salvation, amen? And the judge came down to rescue us. So let me give you a final illustration, and I'm done. I've, I've used this a bunch of times with people when I'm sharing the gospel. I say, imagine that uh, you either die or the end of the world has come, and you end up in a courtroom, and you look up, and there's this huge mahogany bench, and God is there dressed as a judge. He's got the gown on and the gavel and the whole thing. And let's say that, they, that you hear an angel's voice say, we are now going to judge the life of Michael Lance. Dun, 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 dun. Gulp. <laughs> right? And let's say that they have a highly sophisticated, uh, it's no longer a DVD player because we're way beyond that now. It's just a direct link to my life, captured in the biggest screen you could ever imagine. And they begin to play highlights of my childhood through the chair heels from the high chair. <laughs> Early on, it was ugly, right? Now, there's good moments, no doubt. But let's just say that the angel says, we are going to measure Michael's life by the Ten Commandments, just the top ten. We'll see if he ever lied, if he ever lusted, if he ever hated without a cause, if he ever dishonored his parents between the ages of one and 91, <laughs> right? And go, you go down the list of the commandments. If he ever stole anything, it doesn't matter the value, paperclip, pencil, doesn't matter. If he ever coveted other people's stuff, cars, houses, spouses. And so the video plays. It won't take long till I'm negotiating terms of surrender. <laughs> Turn it off! Would you be? How long would it take into the video until you said, Turn it off! Oh, and it's not just the outside things you did. Your thoughts, motivations, the things that you failed to do are all coming under the light of the law. All of it! Things you think you did in secret, it's all there. Now, the judge, judging you by the Ten Commandments, throws the gavel down. Guilty. And you've got nothing to say, so you hang your head. And I want you to imagine now that that judge lays down his gavel, takes off his gown, descends from his bench, looks at you and says, I know you're guilty. I know you failed over and over and over again, but I'm going to take the penalty that you deserve. And you watch them take the judge away, and he pays the capital offense for you. And you're like, why would he do that? Why would the one who would judge me take my penalty? But that is the story of the gospel. The judge took our penalty, and we are forgiven completely because of what he did. And if you understand that to be the gospel, then you have the biblical gospel. It's the righteousness of Christ credited to my account. Now, once he's done that, God's expectation of my life is what? Not that I try to earn, I can't add anything to the perfect judge, but that I live the rest of my life in gratitude. Not to earn my salvation, but in light of my great salvation. Everybody with me? Father, thank you for Psalm 50 and <clears throat> thank you for the precious people that have come out tonight. Thank you for the word of God and psalms that are medicine to our soul. Thank you for conviction. Conviction is healthy. Healthy conviction is good because it leads us back to right living. And I need it, Lord. I can get off track so easily and so quickly. But thank you that you nudge us back and you are so gracious and so patient. Thank you for our great salvation. And thank you that the promises 
in Christ are yes and amen, and you are coming again to judge the world in righteousness. And thank you that my sin was judged at the cross. Now, many of you, I think, already know Jesus in this room, but if you have any question about your salvation, it would be a great time just to say, Lord, Lord Jesus, thank you that you, the judge, became that baby in Bethlehem. Thank you that you came on a rescue mission, prayed if it's you, to save me. Thank you that you fulfilled the law. Thank you that you died on the cross and experienced the wrath of your father in my place. Thank you that you rose from the dead to defeat death, just as you promised. I believe in you. I believe that you are God, creator, king, savior, and Lord. And I repent of my sin and receive you and what you did through the cross and the resurrection for me. Please save me, Lord. If you've been a prodigal and maybe some of the verses that were preached tonight have hit your heart, with some conviction, the good news is that you have a chance to just adjust and amend both your thinking and your actions to God's ways. And they're not really complicated. They're, they're pretty simple and extremely profound. Father, may your living waters bathe, wash over your people tonight. You are good. Your loving kindness is better than life itself. Thank you for loving us first, for calling us to yourself, for taking our punishment at the cross. We just want to spend a, a Selah moment together, allowing your word to transform, to renew, to strengthen. Please protect your people. I pray over the needs of this room tonight and those who are watching, whether they're health concerns or spiritual warfare or maybe even depression and darkness, would you lift those things? Would you cast the enemy out? Would you extend a hand to heal that area of somebody's life that needs a touch from you? Thank you, Father. We ask all of that in Jesus' mighty name.